Hey, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 18. I've been saying that for a couple of months. And hopefully, well, I don't know hopefully, what's it matter, but maybe after today, I'll be saying turn to Acts 19, see how it goes. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 28 this morning. Acts chapter 18, verses uh, 23 to 28. Two weeks ago, we closed out Paul's second missionary journey with Acts 18.22. That's where it sort of gets capped off. If you were with us or if you listened online because you were away on anniversary or sick or whatever, you may recall how Paul wrapped up his second journey by fulfilling his Nazarite vow in Jerusalem and then by going up to his home church in Syrian Antioch to give a report. That's how that kind of, that second journey, kind of, he brought it to an end. The third journey uh, covers a relatively large section of scripture at four chapters, which is pretty extraordinary. Some of the other, the other two have been less than that. So we've got four chapters that will be engaging in terms of his third and final journey. It it began with his departure from Syrian Antioch in 1823, which is where we're basically going to pick up today. And it ends with his arrest and defense speech in Jerusalem in 2221, chapter 22, verse 21. That's kind of the whole breadth of it there. Most of Paul's work during the third journey took place in the city of Ephesus. In fact, Luke dedicated three whole chapters to the work Paul did there from 1823 to 2117. So three full chapters of his third journey are just dedicated to what he did in Ephesus. Must be pretty important stuff. Paul had been to Ephesus before. 1819, we saw that, chapter 18, verse 19. He stopped there briefly, but he didn't stay. He did, however, leave two very faithful and capable people there to minister on his behalf, Priscilla and Aquila. You remember the couple with matching names, how convenient. <laughs> Phil and Phyllis. That'd be weird. He had met them in Corinth and asked them to come along with him and, and to partake in the ministry. And he left them there and they served the Lord Jesus faithfully in Ephesus while he was away. This time around, Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. So the first time he stopped, he stayed probably overnight or a couple of days. And this time around, he's going to be in the city for three years. And that's pretty remarkable because his second journey, the total time he was out doing his second missionary journey planting churches was three years. So this time he's going to spend just three years in the city of Ephesus. He spent more time in Ephesus than in any other city during all three of his journeys. Now let's talk about Ephesus for a moment, being that that's where we're going to spend so much time in the weeks to come, Lord willing. Ephesus was the Roman capital city or the capital city of the Roman province of, of uh, Asia or Asia Minor, we might call it, and today we would call it modern day Turkey. I guess we would consider it to be part of southern Europe. Um, Ephesus was located on the Aegean Sea coast. West of Ephesus, across the Aegean Sea, you had Athens. If you were to look at a map and you would see Ephesus here, and Athens was almost straight across from There's a couple little islands and stuff in between, but if you drew a straight line across, you'd, you'd nail them. They were both port cities right 
there across from each other, but there was an entire sea in between them, if you will. Ephesus became the primary center for travel and commerce in Asia because it hosted one of the greatest seaports in the entire world. Because of its great seaport, it became one of the largest cities in the region with over 250,000 inhabitants. Okay, by today's standards, large cities have millions. Back in those days, large cities had anything above 60,000 people. And so this was an enormous city by ancient standards. Big place. Roughly the size of Modesto, but much prettier. It had a large Jewish population in Ephesus. You may recall from sermons ago how uh, the current Caesar had banned Jews from living in, in Rome, sent them away, sent them packing. That's how, um, that's how this couple ended up over in Ephesus, or not in Ephesus, but in Corinth to begin with. And, and so people were dispersed, they were driven out of Rome, and, and that might, you know, the Jews were, that is, and that might be why there were so many Jews in Ephesus. They left Rome because they were kicked out by the current Caesar, and they went over to cities like Corinth and Ephesus, and Ephesus was much larger. It had a large Jewish population. It had synagogues, a synagogue or synagogues. You know, you had to have a certain amount of Jewish heads of households to have a synagogue. And so it had synagogues. It was big. A lot of Jews. There were also three major thoroughfares, or highways, if you will, that passed through Ephesus, which made it a transcontinental distribution outlet for Greco-Roman goods throughout that entire part of the continent. It was, uh, you know, like that big Ikea plant when you're headed down to Bakersfield. That one distributes all those really inexpensive Swedish pieces of furniture that you have to put together that nobody gets right, and there's always 50 extra screws. Right? Anyone else done that? No? Am I the only moron in here uh, that doesn't read instructions? Uh, you, you think of this place as a major distribution center for Greco-Roman goods, bronze goods, um, pottery, and these sorts of things that were being distributed from this city throughout the rest of the continent, which basically means that it had a, a, a just a, it was a, you know, it had a fortune. I mean, it was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy city. Ephesus's greatest attraction of them all wasn't its commerce or business or, you know, governmental things, even though it was a governmental headquarters for Rome. Its greatest attraction of all was the Temple of Artemis, or we might call it the Temple of Diana, which was constructed in the 6th century B.C. Artemis, or Diana, was thought to be the daughter of Zeus, a goddess, uh, the goddess of the wilderness, the hunt, wild animals, and somehow they managed to slip fertility into there. Uh, it was like the Greeks wanted every god to have some kind of corner on the fertility market, you know, and I don't know if they had fertility issues. I don't know what was going on there. Uh, but she was supposedly this goddess over all of these very, very important things. To the Greeks, the temple was so large that it was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul would have seen the temple as his ship entered the estuary of the river Keister and approached its harbor, which had been specially dredged to accommodate sea traffic. Just to the north beyond the dock stood the massive edifice, more than 400 feet long by 200 feet wide with its 127 
marble columns which were nearly 60 feet tall. This was a massive, massive building. Inside stood a statue of the fertility goddess Artemis of the Ephesians, possibly carved from a black meteorite, significant to the inhabitants because it had fallen from the sky and was presumed to be a gift of the gods. The idol's temple, which was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, also served as a central bank. You know, all that commerce and trade, we got to put the money somewhere. Why not stick it in there next to Artemis? She'll protect it. Big old piece of kryptonite. Four times the size of the, uh, size of the Parthenon. It also served as a central bank, and it was a sanctuary for those who had been accused of criminal activity. Big, big building. Must have been breathtaking as you sailed into the harbor and saw this structure. Must have been incredible. Ephesus was known for its idol production. Metal smiths basically worked around the clock fashioning small, medium, and large representations of Artemis from bronze and copper and other alloys and stone. There were shops everywhere that sold these idols. Idol making was big business in Ephesus, maybe the biggest business of all. You think of all these little Artemis bobbleheads going out. Ephesus was like any other Greco-Roman city. It was superstitious. (laughs) It was religious. It was idolatrous, it was consumer-driven, consumer-driven, it was sexually immoral, it was just like the United States of America. If we went to it, we would say, hey, this looks familiar. The little gods might be different, but it's all the same stuff. And I'll tell you this, because of its condition, its immorality and its idolatry and its false religion and its debauchery and all of these things, It was the perfect place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God didn't come to save those who are well. Christ came to save those who need a physician. This city was perfect for the gospel. That is Ephesus in a nutshell. We've got a little foundation now on the city. Let's pray one more time, because I do not believe we can pray enough in our church services. You get one up front usually and one on the back. I'd rather put, pray 50 times during the service. Whatever happened to prayer. Let's pray one more time and then we'll get to work. Father, open our minds and hearts to the truth. Lord, we are all by nature idolaters, dull in our minds and hearts. Perform a supernatural work in this house today, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit to do his great work of regenerating or sanctifying us. May this sermon not fall on dull ears, Lord. Open our hearts, minds, and ears to the truth of the gospel. Only you can do that. And we beg of you, please do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, look over at 23, 1823 of Acts. You know how we do this if you've been with us. If you don't, never been here, you have no idea how we do this, and you're going to find out. 
and we're glad you're here. We're going to read 23 and just kind of work this exposition. Let's start there at 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, and that other word is pronounced Phrygia, French Phrygia, Phrygia, and it says strengthening all the disciples. After wrapping up his second journey, Paul spent some time at his home church in Syrian Antioch. You know, he kind of brought it to a close and he, and he hung out there. I don't think he took a sabbatical. I don't think that was in his nature. He just kept working and working and working the gospel tirelessly, boldly. Doesn't mean he didn't struggle at times. Doesn't mean that he didn't wrestle with fear and these things. We've seen that already. But for the most part, he hung out at his home church for a bit of time. In his report, because he gave a report, he probably described his experiences, challenges, and successes in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, all those places that he visited during his second journey. Luke doesn't tell us how long he stayed at Syrian Antioch, but how much time would it take for Paul to unpack all that he experienced during his second journey? He was gone for three years. He visited numerous cities and traveled over 2,700 miles by land and sea. It took us 10 sermons and two and a half months just to expound on the second journey. 10 sermons, two and a half months. How long did he spend in this refuge? We don't know, but I would imagine it was at least a couple of weeks or maybe a few months. What about the rest of his team? Where were Silas, Timothy, and Luke? We haven't heard about those guys in a while, have we? Where were those dudes at? Well, Silas and Timothy, we might recall, met up with Paul at Corinth and more than likely stayed with him. In other words, Silas and Timothy were with Paul while he was at Syrian Antioch. They're probably there with him. Luke, however, had been stationed in Philippi by Paul a couple years back. You know, Paul went to Corinth and preached the gospel and planted a church, and he got kind of driven out of there by hostile people, and somehow he managed to leave Luke in place there to minister to the church. He actually, Luke actually remained in Philippi until Paul returned five years later. We see that in chapter 20, verse 3. So Luke was not with Paul, Silas, and Timothy at this point. He was still in Philippi. After giving his report the team set out on the third journey. They began by traveling northwest through Galatia and Phrygia. These were two regions where Paul had already planted churches. Their purpose at this point may not have been to plant new churches, but to strengthen the existing ones. We see that at the end of verse 23. That's the implication. And I believe it is absolutely critical and crucial for us to follow Paul's example here. Checking in on church plants or checking in on your ministries, the ministries that take place under the roof of your church or in the community is highly important. It is very common for church leaders to get an idea, pray through something, get an idea, cast vision, recruit servants, launch ministry, and then to sort of let it go and to rarely ever check in on it. We treat ministry, ministry like some sort of autonomous, self-sufficient, self-oiling mechanism. We treat ministry as if it were robotic. As long as you have the right competent people in place, ministry will just keep going and going and going, and it won't require much of us leaders. 
But that's not the way Paul did ministry. No. That's not at all the way he did ministry. If he started something and had people in place, he would go check on it. If he was able to do it, he would go check on it. And not only did he go check on it, but he actually went to strengthen those ministries and those folks and those servant leaders. How might he have strengthened the disciples, as it says in 23? He probably prayed with them. He probably answered questions and and dealt with their concerns. These, These believers were pretty new. You remember when you first got saved? Million questions. Your pastor was like, oh my gosh, here he comes. Oh. Is Jesus really God? Yes. Let's go get lunch. Yeah. You just remember what that was like? He probably settled their disputes if they had any. And let me tell you something. The church is filled with saved sinners, and we like to dispute. We like to get in each other's face. Calvinism, Arminianism, no, you, ha. Whatever it is. That doesn't really happen here. It's not permitted. It will be if you talk to me about it. I'll tell you that. I'll permit it like a madman. Or whatever it is, we dispute over other things. You know, we're sinners saved by grace. We love to dispute. Why? Because we're prideful. When our needs are seemingly not met by others, we get fired up and ticked and we dispute and have problems and issues. He probably worked to ground these believers in these various churches in Galatian Phrygia to ground them in biblical doctrine, which is seemingly not important in today's church. What's more important is to give you six ways to have a better marriage, to improve certain aspects of your life, to help your 401k. Biblical doctrine is vital. He probably warned them about false teachers and heresies. No doubt. The Judaizers were on the move at this point. They were moving from church to church to church and and talking about circumcision. You've got to be circumcised to be saved and blah, 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 blah. He probably trained and equipped leaders so that they could lead the flock. Makes sense. If you just go and read Paul's epistles you will get a strong sense for how he strengthened the disciples. His letters were written for that purpose, to strengthen the churches that had been planted, to strengthen the leaders, to train the leaders, to correct people that were in error and in sin. How long has it been since you checked in with family, church folks, friends, or others? How long has it been since you strengthened Somebody. You see, it's pretty easy to get wrapped up and to remain wrapped up in our own little worlds, right? Our own little lives. It's pretty easy for me just to, just to, just to read the word and study the word and write sermons and offer some counseling here and there and, and do a little bit of praying and those sorts of things and, and to never check in on the kids' ministry downstairs. That's to my own shame. It's easy for me to get wrapped up and and to not call my mother or to do these things that are so vitally important that we see Paul doing here, not calling his mother, but checking in on people, strengthening the body of Christ. 
I believe we all must do this if we call ourselves a Christian, especially as elders. We must follow Paul's example. Now look at verses 24 to 26. Getting a little serious early, aren't I? It's all right. I'm going to be trying to apply this thing as we go instead of waiting to the end. 24, 26, 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, the matching name couple, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Boy, have guys taken this passage and ran crazy with it. Whew. In verse 24, this is really interesting what takes place here, Luke zips us over to Ephesus. He provides us with a glimpse of what was going on in Ephesus while Paul and his team were strengthening the disciples in Galatia and Pamphylia. So what we have is we have Paul and his team over in Galatia and not Pamphylia, pardon me, Phrygia. They're over there doing ministry, strengthening it. And meanwhile, back at the ranch over in Ephesus, that's his point here. He wants to zap us over and to show us what's happening over there during the same time. Luke, our author, our historian, begins this little mini Ephesian episode, if you will, by introducing us to a man named Apollos. In verses 24 through 26, he included 11 details about him, and I'd like to look at every one of them. They're important. Number one, Apollos was a Jew. Verse 24, how on earth could that be important? It's vital. Luke included this detail about his ethnic or cultural background because he knew that it would help his readers to understand some of the other details that we're going to list, especially number four. His Jewish background helps to shed light on some of these other details and facts about him. And so it's important that we know and understand that he was Jewish. Probably a Hellenized Jew, a Greek-style Jew, every bit Jewish. He wasn't some Jewish convert. He was a Jew, but he was Hellenized. He had these Greek sort of attributes about him. Number two, Apollos was a native of Alexandria, verse 24. Alexandria was located in northern Egypt near the mouth of the Nile River. It was the capital city of Egypt, The Roman province, capital of Egypt, from about 330 B.C., taking its name from the Greek king Alexander the Great. Most of us have heard of him. It became one of the greatest of all the ancient cities. It may have hosted the largest population of Jews outside of Israel at one million. This was a big city, and it had a lot of Jewish people in it. There were so many Jews in the city that two out of its five quadrants or districts were strictly Jewish. They had two huge sections of the city that were devoted just to Jews. They had their own areas. Pretty amazing. 
Alexandria was also a center for learning and education. It was often referred to as the city of scholars. Prior to being invaded and burned down by Arab forces in 642 AD, it had one of the largest and greatest and grandest libraries in the entire world with over 700,000 books. Unfortunately, they were burned up in the invasion. That's a big library. Apollos was basically an Egyptian Jew. Number three, Apollos came to Ephesus. Duh. Says it right there, verse 24. Luke doesn't plainly tell us why Apollos came to Ephesus, but the type of ministry he did there provides a clue, does it not? Apollos preached Jesus in the synagogues, which means that he was there to what? Advance the gospel. He was there to advance the gospel. He may have been a missionary sent from Alexandria or Judea. And I think he actually was from Alexandria, but then he moved to Judea for a while, then he came over. He was there to assist in the Lord's work because a revival was kind of beginning or something of that nature. There was, you know, the Christianization of that city was starting to take place, if you will. I don't know if that's the right term, but God was at work in the city. Apollos knew about it, and he went there to assist in the work. He went there to use his gifts and talents. He went there to use his time, talent, and treasure. You always got to slip that sucker right in there. Because that's what we should all be doing, right? Amen, that. Four. Apollos was an eloquent man. Verse 24. Eloquent means to be, and you know, we, we typically think of eloquence as someone who speaks well. Yes, it means that. But in this particular Greek tense, it means to be well-educated. It means to be learned. Some of your translations might not say eloquent. They might say learned. Maybe a King James. He was well-learned. He was educated, and he was eloquent in speech. He had probably been trained in rhetoric, in communication, something of that nature in Alexandria, which had colleges left and right. And, and, and man, if you wanted to go to school, that was the city to go to. More than likely, he had been educated in Alexandria. He might have received his education there, learned, the master, learned to master the art of communication, rhetoric, what have you. He was eloquent. Five, Apollos was competent in the scriptures, verse 24. This is massive. This had to do with his Jewish background. This is why it's important for us to know that he was Jewish. You could not learn about the Torah, Old Testament scriptures, at Greek schools. You could not take a theology class there on the Old Testament or the New Testament or any of those other things. You know, the Greeks did not offer anything to do with that stuff. That was Judaism, which they thought was stupid and foolish and what have you. They didn't offer those kinds of courses. You could not take those courses at the community college or any other college or any other school. If you wanted to learn the scriptures, if you wanted to become competent in the scriptures, you had to attend what they would call Jewish school, which was located in the synagogues. See, the synagogues weren't just houses of worship in those days. Many times they served as a little college to educate. This is no doubt where Apollos was trained and became competent in the scriptures. He very likely spent his early years, teenage years, and young adult years in one of these schools. This was very common in Jewish society. They 
prided themselves on educating their children in the scriptures. It was even mandatory in some cases. He was competent in scripture. Six, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25. When when we think of the way of the Lord, I I know when I think of it, I'm, I'm reminded of John the Baptist who cited Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. What did he say? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare, prepare what? The way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You see, John the Baptist came to announce the coming of Israel's Messiah. He came to pave the way for the Messiah's arrival. He, he called for the people to prepare themselves through repentance and baptism. John the Baptist was a primer for the Lord and the gospel, if you will. He even declared the gospel in a sense when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the way of the Lord has to do with the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ, which is what John the Baptist came to prepare the people to hear and to receive. Apollos had been instructed in the gospel. He knew the gospel, but not just in his head, as so many do today, but also in his heart, instructed there in the Greek tense, connotes salvation. He knew the Lord, the way of the Lord, in terms of being saved. It wasn't just head knowledge, it was heart knowledge. It was a combination of both, which is essential for true salvation. He knew the gospel. He had been instructed. He believed the gospel. He trusted in Jesus for his eternal salvation. Seven, Apollos was fervent In spirit, verse 25, you see all these little details coming out? I mean, they're all over there. And they're just bam, 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 bam. Pretty cool. Fervent in spirit may be a reference to how he was very passionate when he preached or how he was filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit when he preached. Commentators like both views. I think it's a combination of both. I think Apollos was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's why he preached passionately. The Holy Spirit is the one who orchestrates and guides true preaching. And since the Holy Spirit is God, and God clearly isn't dead, true preaching should be characterized by fervency of spirit or passion. Why is there so much dull and lifeless preaching in the church today? Isn't that a great question? I'll tell you why. Because preachers are either not filled with the Holy Spirit, or guess what, folks? This happens. They're still dead in their sins. There are a lot of wolves in pulpits today. You see, if you have the living God in you, the Holy Spirit... You're going to be impacted, man. You're going to be changed. And very often, you're going to be pumped up about that. And you're going to want to share that passionately with others. This whole monotone one thing. What? What? You don't feel it? You don't have like Jeremiah, that burning in your bones? There's a lot of lifeless preaching. 
There's never lifeless preaching in this church. It's so animated, I start splashing people with sweat. That's where it crosses the line, apparently. I yell a lot, right? Whenever my wife says, you are so loud, I'm passionate. (laughs) Ain't no babies in, oh. Look at him, he's listening, yeah. He's like, what's going on in here? Somebody's angry. I'm not angry, kid. Eight. Apollos taught accurately about Jesus. Verse 25, you know what's impossible? Teaching about Jesus accurately apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? This detail has to do with the active work of the Holy Spirit in and through Apollos You know, nothing in the Bible can be understood apart from the supernatural ear, mind, and heart-opening work of the Holy Spirit. Truth is spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14, amen? In order for Apollos to teach about Jesus accurately, he had to first understand about Jesus and the gospel accurately, right? Can we think in terms of logic here? If you're going to present Christ accurately and that's going to be recorded in Scripture, the guy must have had one heck of a good understanding about Jesus. And we know that if we're left in our flesh, we'll never understand Jesus, never pursue him, never go after him, never do anything but just engage in sin. He taught accurately about Jesus. Why? Because I always ask myself questions when I read these points here, when I read the scriptures, I I start asking myself questions. The next question comes, why is there so much bad, inaccurate preaching or teaching in the church today? Has anyone noticed this? Am I the only one? Some of you are saying, I notice it once in a while on Sunday in this church. (laughs) It happens. Not intentionally. But why is it? Just go to a church, listen to what people are saying. Go, you know, just, just look what's going on. Are we so out of touch? Listen to what preachers are teaching and, and listen to what they're saying. Listen on the radio. Watch them on, t- don't watch them on TV. <laughs> Why is there so much inaccurate, bad, junky, garbage preaching and teaching in the church today? Because preachers do not know Jesus. They do not know the scriptures. That's why. Study time has been replaced with managing a cruise ship for most pastors. It's insane. You know, back in the old days, a guy was given, a a lead pastor or a teaching pastor was given 20, 30 hours a week to study the word of God so he could bring something good, something wholesome, something that would nourish the sheep. And today, you know, he's told you got about six hours to get that done. You can't do anything in six hours. It just perpetuates the illiteracy, doesn't it? MacArthur is right when he says biblical ignorance has, it's unprecedented. It's never been as high throughout all of church history than today. Amen. Well, whose responsibility is it to feed the sheep? What did Peter, what did Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep, those who lead, those who teach, those who preach. It is their responsibility. 
to feed the sheep. Doesn't mean that you guys don't become self-feeders. We all do. If we love Jesus and the word, we're gonna read, we're gonna study, we're gonna contemplate, we're gonna memorize, we're gonna preach it, gossip it. I get a little fired up about these things. And I pray a lot for myself that I wouldn't slip into those patterns of minimizing what is essential to take on a whole bunch of other things that aren't essential. Nine, Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. Verse 25, this is why I said he probably came from Judea. That's where John the Baptist did ministry years prior. And this detail will help us to understand why Priscilla and Aquila intervened in verse 26. Through John's example and teaching, Apollos learned many things, good things. Okay, John the Baptist was, according to Jesus, the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth. The greatest ever born of a woman. Why? Because he announced Jesus. All the others announced Jesus, but they weren't there when Jesus came. John the Baptist taught many things, and his disciples learned many things. John taught that baptism had to do with repentance and basically the forgiveness of sins. This was accurate in a sense, but not complete. It was an Old Testament view. John may not have understood the association of immersion in water with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture to cause us to believe that John fully grasped the true and full meaning of baptism in relation to the person and work of Jesus Christ. According to my study, my research, I could be wrong, but I looked over this. The closest John ever got on the subject is in Matthew 3 where he declared that he baptized with water for repentance but that one greater than he would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. This had to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 3 to 4, and judgment and hell, Matthew 3, 10. This is, I just can't find anything where he's correlating, where he's paralleling his baptism with the life, death, burial, you know, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't teach that. So he may have been limited in his understanding of baptism and the work of Christ in a sense. That doesn't mean that he was evil. That doesn't mean that he was wicked. That doesn't mean that he was unsaved. Now think of those whom John taught. Think about his disciples. John would have taught them what he knew and what he understood. That's what good teachers do. His view of baptism, which was limited, would have become his disciples' view as well. Like priests, like people, right? The people become like their priest, like their pastor. Over time, they take on his theology, and that can be a fantastic thing, and that can be a disastrous thing if his theology's off. Apollos, therefore, had a limited understanding and view of baptism just as his teacher had. He wasn't able to relate water baptism to the life, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed baptism to his audiences, but he proclaimed John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness rather than the New Testament baptism, the example of that, which represents being buried in fleshly death, raised to new life in Jesus Christ, and identified with the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's what baptism represents. 
Not to mention, only Jesus can forgive sin. Water's just a symbol of his cleansing blood. You see, this was his problem, his limited view here on this subject. 10, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, verse 26. Apollos took the information that he had and he went right into the synagogues and preached boldly. He was a force to be reckoned with. But his preaching was lacking. As I said earlier, I suspect it was his view of baptism that was deficient. Everything was cool in his sermons until he got to that point. But he needed help. He needed instruction. He needed someone to come along and broaden his theology. He needed someone to come and unfold the scriptures for him. He needed a Martin Bucer or a Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers has helped me with my theology for years. In fact, he's the reason why I'm a Calvinist. So if you hate that about me, kill him. (laughs) It's never been the same, brother. Apollos needed help. And I don't think he was aware of it. There was nothing in the text to lead us to believe that he was deliberately teaching inaccurately. He didn't have wrong motives. He was simply unaware of some important truths. And aren't we all? Man, my first 200 sermons were something else. They should be used to heat the flue of 200 fireplaces. I can't even go back and listen to them. I get mad at myself. Start punching myself. What, are you, what were you doing? I forgot I got a mic right here. What were you thinking when you said that? You weren't. That's what you knew. You went with what you knew. You went with what you understood. I did the best I could with the knowledge I had. We must all understand that those of us who are in Christ are on a journey. We are being sanctified and conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. God knows that we do not have all the answers. He knows our limitations. He knows our theology. And he gave us the Holy Spirit in one another to help us grow and overcome these limitations and our ignorance. He gave us one another for the purpose of building each other up. That is the purpose of our spiritual gifts. He gave us one another for the purpose of sharpening each other. Coming to one another's aid when we hear error or whatever. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. And here's what's so beautiful about this. The guy's doing his best with what he knows, but he falls short. And God brought Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila to sharpen and build him up. They did exactly what believers are supposed to do. They're not supposed to sit back and go, this guy's way off. He's an idiot. I'll never come to this church again. They're not supposed to be critical. Well, I know something that he doesn't know. What a buffoon. They come, and they assist, and they help. Eleven, that leads to eleven, the last one. Apollos was instructed by Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26. These two godly people sat through, or rather suffered through, one of Apollos' expositions. And after he wrapped it up, they graciously approached him and offered some instruction. How many of us would be caring enough and even bold enough to do such a thing? 
Now, please don't rush me after the service. But seriously, every man who stands in, in this pulpit here and, and preaches the word is a human being, a, a sinner saved by grace, and is prone to ignorance and error. We do not get everything right. We are not perfect. We are not omniscient. As Col- Colby rightfully put it on Friday night, we were hanging out talking. He said the only perfect preacher in history was Jesus. It would never be wrong for, for you to offer instruction to any of us who preach here from this pulpit if we were found to be in error. It's your responsibility and duty to lovingly point those things out. And if anyone who preaches in this pulpit should begin to preach heresy, it is your responsibility and duty to drive us from this church. You realize that's your responsibility as a congregation. In so many ways, you call the shots when it comes to those things. You're to protect yourselves and one another from wolves. I would say if anyone were to go down some crazy weird paths, and many are today, throw us out. Now, how did Apollos respond to their instruction? Did he become filled with pride and angry and say, how dare you instruct me? Who do you think you are? I'm the preacher. You're the sheep. The sheep don't come to the shepherd and and give him input and say these things to him. You got to know your role and it's right there in the pew. Is that what he did? Did he say, I'll listen to you, Aquila, but not to your wife because she's a woman and women aren't supposed to instruct men. You know, if my wife were to end her encouragements and instructions to me, I would turn into a flaming pile of cow dung in two weeks. This whole idea that women can't offer instruction to men in the right context is preposterous. Any man in this room who's married, think if your wife cut you off on instruction in these things. What would happen to you? But then guys take this to mean, look, look, Priscilla offered him encouragement. We need women elders. There's the other extreme. A woman instructed a man. There it is. We can build a case right there on this. And we need women elders and women pastors. And we go crazy with this idea. None of this says any of that. One of the purposes of Marriage is sanctification. My wife helps me to become like Jesus, and I help her to become like Jesus. I sure try. She tries with me. Why? So that God can be glorified in and through our marriage. So how did Apollos respond? Well, I can't listen to her. She's a woman. She's not supposed to instruct men. You know, you realize she wasn't in a pulpit preaching. She was off to the side somewhere with her husband there. Praise God for her instruction. Let's not forget who it was that was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was dying. One guy who can't stop saying, Jesus loved me, and a whole bunch of women. All the other guys were out running around. Ah! Women are the backbone of the church. Some of us guys just don't get that, and we just trample them and squash them and... hurting ourselves. We're hurting the cause of Christ.
Now, how did he respond? Look at verses 28, 27 through 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. How did he respond He humbled himself. He submitted to them and he applied their instruction. His understanding of baptism, therefore, whatever it was, whether it was inaccurate or whatever, it got broadened. It became whole. It became true to the gospel. He grew in his faith. His theology expanded. For Apollos, this was one of those aha moments It was as if the missing puzzle piece had been found and properly placed. You know what that feels like, right? You know what it's like when you learn a significant and maybe even life-changing truth. There's nothing like that feeling. It's exhilarating and being propelled by joy and gratitude and with the knowledge, the true knowledge of baptism, the knowledge of the gospel, Apollos began to think about where he might go next. Maybe I'll go to Achaia. Wow. You see the power of instruction here? After sharing his idea with the Ephesian brothers, which is fantastic because that means there were already believers there, people were getting saved. He, he shared his idea with the Ephesian brothers. They wrote him a letter It was a reference letter. What might it have said? This guy's okay. Let him into the church. He's not a Judaizer. He's not a wolf. He's not a false teacher. And guess what? He's a pretty sick preacher. Give him the pulpit. And Paulus traveled across the Aegean Sea to Corinth where he stayed with the church. Acts 19.1. He ministered to the disciples Paul had left behind. He even went into the synagogues where Paul had once preached and began to powerfully refute the Jews in public by showing how Christ was Jesus, how the Messiah was Jesus Christ. Now take notice of Luke's very, very important detail at the end of verse 27. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Believing in Jesus is a grace thing. It is through grace we believe. Faith isn't intrinsic. It isn't hidden away in every human heart waiting to be utilized. Faith is foreign. It is a gift that is given by God according to the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. It is by grace we are saved through faith. Look at the text. Notice how grace comes before belief. Grace comes first. Belief follows. It doesn't say that they believed and then received grace. It's the other way around. And grace isn't some mystical, mysterious or mystical or magical universal thing that hangs in the air waiting for people to take hold of it. No, that's not at all what grace is. It comes down from heaven as a perfect gift in the form of a supernatural life-changing work carried out by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's chosen people. It comes from God. It comes down. It is one way. As Tullian would put it, it is one-way love. 
What would happen if God withheld his grace? I'll tell you what would happen. No one would ever get saved. There is power in the grace. There is regeneration in the grace. There is transformation in the grace. There is a new disposition, a new heart. These things come. Grace comes and it changes us. We pass from darkness to light. We begin to embrace all that God is and all that he says. We love him now like never, we've never loved him before. We called out to him when we were puking into toilets. Well, I know you're up there somewhere. Save me from this financial dilemma that I won't admit that I started on my own here. Got myself into. God let the Broncos win the Super Bowl. God answered that decisively, did he not? <laughs> I had you the whole time, and that was the disconnect point for you. He's going to come to me after you realize you shouldn't say those things. And my wife is on your team, believe me. Oh, we call out to him, but we certainly don't know him or really care to know him or to want him to do, to do his will. We don't want anything to do. We, we want what he has to offer, but we don't want any change to come to ourselves. Oh, that means work. Never mind. Carry the cross. I'm out. You see, it is given by God. It comes from God. It's one way. What would happen if he withheld it? No one would ever get saved. Without grace, there is no faith. There is no salvation. Why did God design it to work this way? It's very mysterious, but it's throughout your Bibles. You cannot contest it. You can try. Why is grace the catalyst? Why does it all begin with grace? Why does our salvation begin with grace? Let's just say it that way. I'll tell you why. Ephesians 2.8, don't take my word for it. Take the word of God for it so that no one may boast. That's it. So that no one may boast. You can't go to heaven and say, look what I conjured up and did. You put it out there and I grabbed a hold of it and I never let go. I exerted my will and, and did these things and embraced this thing and give me heaven. And I have a feeling he would say, I never knew you. Away from me. That's the truth. That's not because I'm a Calvinist. Forget that title. That's what your Bible teaches over and over and over. It's inescapable. Grace, grace, grace. The minute you exert your will and do something, it's no longer grace. Romans 9 says it's not by human will or human exertion, but by grace who shows mercy, to whom he will show mercy. It's all God. That is the most liberating truth in the known universe, knowing that salvation is entirely of God. I don't have to try to do something to conjure it up. I, don't, I, don't, I can't, you know, I'm, I, I will persevere to the end because what he gave, he will sustain and bring to fruition. I, I can just literally enjoy it and respond in love and gratitude and in obedience and in proclaiming the gospel. I don't have to go, well, I got to go do 24 Hail Marys. I got to do this. I got to do that. If I disconnect from the church for a couple of weeks because I was sick, I'll lose myself. You know, this is all the garbage that's going on out there. Some think that because you responded to the cross and embraced it, you better hang on to it your whole life because the minute you let it go, you're lost forever. 
if it were in within our capability to lose salvation, we would have all lost it already. I got saved on Sunday. I found myself lost on Monday morning. That's how quick we would lose it. Isn't that the truth? He helped those who, through grace, had believed. Without the grace, no belief. Why? So that no one may boast. It's all God. It's all God. Back to Apollos. Apollos was so gifted and helpful in Corinth that the believers put him way up high on a pedestal and exclaimed about him, Apollos is our guy, we follow him. Woo! Well, that pastor's my guy, I follow him. That guru is my guru, I follow him. Apollos was actually likened to the heaviest hitters in the church like Paul and Peter. Now, being likened to those guys was a pretty big thing, wouldn't you think? It eventually got out of control. The church began to divide into little clubs. I belong to this guy, I belong to that guy, I belong to that guy. Paul corrected them in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. We heard it earlier, we read it earlier. Guys, we all follow Jesus. Man, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because you'd be going around saying, I got baptized by Paul. My baptism's better than yours. This wasn't Apollos' fault. This pained him. He was too humble to play along with these games. He was too humble to play along with the favoritism. It wasn't his style. We see that so clearly in how he was totally welcoming and open to the instruction of a married couple. It wasn't his style. he may have written to Paul and said I need help this church is going crazy they're treating me like Bono of you 2 that's never been my intention they're treating me like old this guy over here or that guy over here what am I supposed to do I've been telling them over and over to stop it's about Christ well that concludes this sermon in chapter 18 Lord willing, we will begin to study chapter 19 next Sunday. Paul <laughs> is going to enter Ephesus, and that city is going to explode. It is going to erupt. Plan to be here. Don't miss out. Mark your calendars, and don't forget to invite others. We're going to have our time of communion. You will be given a moment to reflect upon what you've heard, to repent of any sin that you might have in your life, to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. We heard that earlier. Family time to be refreshed by God's grace and to, equally important, to commit yourself to obeying the way of the Lord. We're not supposed to be lawless. We humbly and joyfully obey what God has commanded for us to do, to love him with all that we are, and to love others as we would love ourselves. And Father God, continue to speak to us during this time. Maybe we might even find some parallels between Apollos and ourselves or some deficiencies. 
whatever they may be, Lord, reveal to us who we truly are at this particular moment. Help us to know what we're involved in. If there is sin, Lord, convict us deeply that we might confess our sin, repent of it, walk away from it. May we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ, that it's all grace. Grace, grace, grace. And what a gift that is that you give. It changes us. It secures us. How marvelous your grace is. And the greatest, greatest expression of your grace is seen on Calvary's cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If there would be anyone in this room today who does not know you in a saving way, Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to them. May they know that during this time of communion that they are, unless they should repent and believe in you, that they are to sit this out. Meanwhile, Lord, encourage your saints during this time. May we enjoy our time together in your presence, looking forward to the supper that we will have in heaven. Thank you again for your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.